Welcome, Modern War listeners. I'm Captain Jake Moraldi. Today on the podcast, we'll be talking to Dr. Tanisha Fazal, an Associate Professor of Political Science and Peace Studies at the University of Notre Dame and an adjunct scholar at the Modern War Institute at West Point. Dr. Fazal's most recent work discusses the changing kill-to-wounded ratio in war and its effect on soldiers, policymakers, and the public. As always, the views expressed in this podcast are those of the respective participants and do not constitute the position of the United States government. This is the Modern War Institute Podcast. All right, so Dr. Fazal, thank you for joining us today on the podcast. Um, In much of your writing, you talk about the false modern oppression of the number of casualties in warfare, uh, primarily about how the changing nature of battlefield mortality skews our understanding of war. As a way to kind of frame our discussion, I want to start out and ask you, how and why battlefield mortality has changed, uh, and then we can get deeper into the the larger effects of that change. So I think that the way to start thinking about this is to talk in terms of the wounded-to-killed ratio, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's the number of wounded divided by the number of killed. And for centuries, if not millennia, this ratio was very steady at three to one. You could set your clock by this, and lots of people, in fact, did set their clock by this. But for advanced industrial democracies like the United States, that ratio has been increasing over time. And today, depending on who you talk to, for the United States military, it's somewhere between 10 to 1 and 17 to 1. So the wounded to killed ratio has increased dramatically, um, and it's increased really in the most recent conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan for the United States. And I would say that there are four factors that are driving this increase that all have to do with improvements in medicine. Um, Many of them have to do with improvements in military medicine specifically. So uh, the first factor, and the military physicians I've talked to about this say that this is actually the most important factor, are simply improvements in preventive care. You have immunizations today. Um, We know to dig latrines farther from camp, things like that. Um, The second factor are improvements in battlefield medicine itself. There was a really important study done after the Vietnam War that showed that there 38% of battlefield deaths were caused, were preventable. Uh, and would have been prevented had there been better control of blood loss. So as a result of that, we have much better tactics or techniques today for dealing with hemorrhage. There are better clotting agents. You've got the one-handed tourniquet today, which you didn't before the tourniquet. There's a great story here about how the tourniquet fell out of use for a long time and then came back into use. You have antibiotics, you have antiseptics, you have all these different practices. You have the forward deployment of medics in a way that you didn't used to. So that's the second factor, which are these improvements in, in battlefield medicine. The third factor are improvements in evacuation. Um, you're not having people lay on the battlefield after a wound for weeks at a time. And, and to some extent, this is just a result of having mechanized transport today. Uh, and you see these improvements really playing a role in some of um, the current conflicts that the U.S. or recent conflicts, current and recent conflicts that the U.S. has been engaged in. And then the fourth factor is uh, better uh, protective personal equipment 
the two parts of your body that are most vulnerable to a fatal wound are your trunk and your head. Uh, and today we've got body armor that protects your trunk and helmets, really good helmets, much better than there used to be, right? So in the Napoleonic Wars, they were these bonnets, they were called felt caps, which isn't really going to afford very much protection to your head, um, that protect your head. And what this means is you have many more people as a percentage of those deployed, All when you take all these four factors and put them together, who are surviving wounds that they would not have survived in past wars. So they're coming home, but oftentimes coming home with some pretty severe wounds. So the the components of that change in the in the wounded killed ratio that you talked about, the the movement from a three to one ratio to a, a ten to seventeen to one ratio, mm-hmm. um, obviously has big impacts at a soldier level. How is that how is that played out in Iraq and Afghanistan? you think? Well, I think uh, you see some of these factors becoming very evident in the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. So, for example, um, NATO has a policy with respect to deployment and evacuation called the golden hour policy, where they won't deploy forces beyond a perimeter where they could be evacuated within an hour to a medical facility because if you can get treatment after a wound in that first critical hour, then you're much more likely to survive, dramatically more likely to survive. Um, you know, we definitely saw this in the debates about body armor uh, at the beginning of OEF and also OIF, where and, you know, this, I think, continues to be a debate. Is the body armor too constricting or is it really saving lives? The research that I've seen lately suggests that it's doing more good than harm. But I think that will continue to be a debate. I don't think you see, um, you know, the, the role of preventive medicine, a lot of that happens before somebody joins the service. Although, of course, there are immunization requirements in the service. Uh, as well. And, but there have been some pretty important adjustments, I think, that have been made with respect to battlefield medicine in Iraq and Afghanistan, just adjusting to the particular uh, conflict theater. I think the you talking about the golden hour policy and how that's influenced the way that we as an army uh, and as a military have operated in places like Iraq and Afghanistan is a really good segue into understanding the impact of this battlefield change on policy and perception, either in the army or uh, in a political and and public perception sense, can you elaborate on on your findings in terms of how this battlefield change has influenced public perception and and the policy of the United States? based on our understanding of warfare and how many people are are killed and wounded in war? So my concern is that it hasn't influenced um, public perceptions or the perceptions of policymakers, or that if it has, it's influenced in maybe the wrong direction. Uh, I've done some survey research where I've asked people tried to see whether people are sensitive to different kinds of casualties. Now, when we talk about public opinion and support for the deployment of military 
force. There's been a, a dominant hypothesis in the field for a very long time called the casualty aversion hypothesis. And the logic is a really simple one that the more casualties that are incurred, the lower support will be. And, you know, this logic is there's a lot of back and forth. Um, some people buy it. Some people don't. And I don't really have a dog in that fight, but it's been defined exclusively in terms of fatalities. Casualties have been defined exclusively in terms of fatalities. And this is true not just for the scholarly literature, but also when you look at polls that are fielded by organizations like Gallup and Pew. So I looked at uh, all the questions, or hundreds and hundreds of questions uh, about uh, that were put to the public by these polling organizations about OEF and OIF, and there were zero questions about the wounded as casualties, although there were questions about fatalities as casualties. So, and, and this, I think, is problematic because increasingly, our share of casualties is comprised by the wounded, and this has real implications, not just for the soldiers who come home and for their families, but for everybody, because there's a financial cost to this um, in the very long term in terms of providing medical care to these veterans, which is an obligation, and rightly so, that the U.S. government has. So what I did was I fielded... Um, uh, a set of surveys to see whether people were sensitive to the to information about the wounded as casualties. And I found that in the general population, there was basically zero sensitivity to this. Um, that for the for the civilian population, people didn't really take the wounded into account. They didn't care about the wounded any more than they cared about fatalities. When you put questions to them about taxes for a war, that's really where you'd have an impact. So I think in, in terms of policy, if you really wanted to translate the effect of the wounded in a way that would make clear to the public that this maybe ought to depress support for or affect, let's say, um, support for military deployment, you would have to put it in financial terms. That kind of leads me to my next question, because the the obvious progression from a populace that is not necessarily sympathetic to the wounded cost mm -hmm. in warfare translates, whether directly or indirectly, into the political understanding and the understanding of our leaders uh, about their sympathy concerning fatalities and wounded soldiers in war. Do you, in your research, see that starting to crop up, the, the lack of sensitivity to the wounded happening in a political sense? So I think that uh, there are a few ways to look at this. And it's really interesting in light of the current election where veterans and veterans care has definitely come up uh, here and there and sometimes in some pretty controversial ways. So I think that, um, you know, veterans care is a hot button issue in Washington, D.C. now, and no one is going to say that they wouldn't support caring for our veterans. Um well, hopefully because it would be the wrong thing to say, but certainly because it would be politically a very unsavvy thing to say. I think that uh, it is very hard to disaggregate 
these costs or to really get a, a another way to put it is to get a, a, a clear global view of what these costs are. So I've been, this is something that I've been starting to look into, but I wouldn't say that I've completed this part of the project because I'm in some ways at the beginning of this enterprise. And it's really hard to figure out how much war costs, especially if you want to think about these downstream costs of war. How much is it, you know, you, so if a particular soldier goes to war and uh, suffers an injury, is near an IED, and as a result suffers traumatic brain injury, and is going to have to receive treatment for TBI for a certain amount of time, when we think about the costs of war, we don't necessarily include those costs of medical care. Uh, in that. There are, now, there are some researchers, um, Linda Bilmes at Harvard Kennedy School in particular, who has started to incorporate the long-term medical costs of caring for veterans into the cost of war. But again, it's, it's really hard to do. I think even if you had a CP, uh, you know, even if you were an accountant, which, which I'm not. So one of the things that I'm hoping to do for this project is to go to Washington, D.C. and to interview the budgeteers. Because my guess is that they did not anticipate these improvements in military medicine that um, happened you know, so clearly in OEF and OIF. And I'm curious to know whether and to what extent they might have adjusted for those improvements in costing out this war and future wars. I think one cons- the last thing I'll say about this, um, at least for now, is that one concern is that if... If the public is not sensitive to the wounded, and if politicians take cues from the public about what's politically accepted, and these are all ifs, these are things that are up for debate, but if we want to connect those two dots, then one concern is that with these improvements in military medicine and the increased wounded-to-killed ratio, then it makes war seem less costly. and therefore might make politicians or decision makers more likely to deploy force. That was actually going to be my next question is looking into the future. The potential for this is that because the costs are the immediate costs, as you said, not necessarily the downstream costs, but the, the costs during the war itself seem less significant maybe than they have been in previous wars due to the the wounded-to-killed ratio uh, in the past versus now. Is warfare as an option for our leaders becoming more easily accessible than maybe it was in the past? Is that something that potentially is is in our future? I think that's that's a potential implication of the argument I'm making. Um, As an academic, I'm sort of naturally wary of drawing really hard lines between those dots because we don't really know what the future will bring. But I will say that it's consistent with some other tools that we have today at our disposal for deploying force, which appear to be less costly, like drones, um, or autonomous weapon systems, which you know are expensive in terms of the materiel, but inexpensive in terms of casualties incurred by the U.S., although potentially very politically expensive in terms of casualties inflicted by the U.S. and what that might mean for the prosecution of a war. 
or or something less than a war. And it also has implications, and I've done some work on this as well, and not directly related to this project, for what we think of as war today, right? I mean, I I think that you could say that a lot of wars today are really conducted under the radar. So you mentioned the the research you're doing talking about the the downstream costs. Where is your research focused? Uh, can you kind of expound on on what your latest project is? Um, so part, that's part of why I'm here <laughs> um, and part of why I'm, I'm excited to have this affiliation with the Modern War Institute and with West Point because I'm kind of trying to get my arms around this project. Um, the way I've been thinking about it is that it's a project on military medicine and the cost of war. And I want to make the argument that military improvements in military medicine, which are a good thing, right? They're saving lives, but they do have these unintended consequences where you have people, again, coming home, more of them coming home as a percentage of those deployed and coming home oftentimes with very severe injuries that are going to preclude them from being an economically productive member of society, from having a normal life. And I don't think we've thought about that. So I want to make the argument that these improvements in military medicine have generated these costs and that we haven't really appreciated these costs. So that's, I'm sort of, um, I've done, I think, the first piece of this is showing the improvements in military medicine, a little bit of the survey research that shows that uh, that these costs aren't really appreciated, at least by the public. I hope to uh, interview policymakers to talk to them about how they respond to this, although I'm a little bit skeptical just for the reasons I mentioned earlier. No one's going to say, oh, we don't really care about these wounded veterans. Um, but I also do want to talk to the budgeteers about how they, the factors that they include in the costs of war. I think the next step that I could take with this project, but I'm sort of here partly on a listening tour to figure out what might be interesting to people, is to ask why it was that these costs were ignored or have been, I mean, ignored may be too strong a word, but have been underappreciated. Um, maybe there are um, uh, psychological arguments about the effects of the wounded versus the killed, right? So um, just on a, on a very individual, the level of individual psychology people may value uh, may be more concerned about death than about wounds. Uh, it could be because the budgeting process is so diffuse. You know, there's a more sinister hypothesis in there, which is that maybe politicians, this, you know, can be beneficial to certain politicians who want to have their hands freed in order to prosecute war. But I don't, uh, I'm not sure that that's the direction I'm going to take. And if I do, I certainly don't know which of any of those hypotheses would have the most support. Yeah, no, I think, I think, any of those are interesting, and it it's interesting as someone who has, has been involved in the wars that we've had in Iraq and Afghanistan um, to see the relative the relative lack of consideration on the back end um, and sort of the scramble to establish systems once we as soldiers return home to handle what's what I have seen argued as sort of the the unique nature of a lot of the wounds that, that people are coming back with the TBIs the the leg amputations um, those those sorts of things so it's been it's been interesting being kind of at the ground level seeing seeing that play out and, and that us having to scramble to build those things instead of having them in place beforehand yeah I think this is part of the explanation for the VA scandal right I, I'm I mean I, I haven't 
talk to folks at the VA, but I'll bet you a nickel that they have actuaries on staff and they know how many Korean and Vietnam War veterans are going to be diagnosed with chronic heart disease in a given year. But I don't think that the VA expected as many people coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan as they did. And they didn't, they weren't prepared, as you said, for this new array of injuries. And so now they're having to do things like stand up TBI clinics. Um, but it's interesting that you said that the injuries are unique. And I'm not sure that uh, that's necessarily true. I think, uh, you know, we talk a lot about post-traumatic stress today. You know, that's been around forever. It's just that now we have the diagnostic tools to deal with it. My, uh, you know, if you'll forgive a personal anecdote, my father-in-law uh, just published a book that is a translation of his father's, or his grandfather's, sorry, um, uh, epic poem that he wrote in Italian because he served in the Italian army. And my father-in-law is a forensic psychiatrist, and he has, you know, from a distance of generations, diagnosed his grandfather with post-traumatic stress. So this has been around for a long time. It's just that now we know about it. There are some interesting questions, I think, about whether post-traumatic stress is different for a counterinsurgency operation as opposed to a conventional operation. And I at least don't have the answer to that question yet. Well, great. Um, because I host this podcast at West Point, um, I always kind of ask the question whenever I interview someone of how a cadet or, or someone who's graduating and becoming a, a new lieutenant can use the information that we've we've talked about. Is there anything that you feel like our understanding of casualties in war, especially over the last 10 or 15 years, anything that cadets should know going out into the force um, about that? Ooh, that is, that is a good question. Um, I'm, it's funny cause I'm here. I feel like I'm here to learn from the cadets, so. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but taking what I know and translating it into practice on the field, I think that, um, you know, as I said, these improvements in military medicine are a good thing. And a lot of the improvements have emerged from smart officers paying attention. Uh, there's a great story about how during World War One there weren't really good helmets at the beginning. And there's this one general, and I can't remember if he was also a physician, who um, was treating or, or saw an infantryman who was in the midst of a firefight but didn't really get very injured and asked this infantryman why. And it turned out that this guy had been wearing a metal mess bowl over his head. Uh, and that's why we have helmets, better helmets today. So, and if he hadn't, and the fact that he did that, right, saved a lot of lives. So smart officers paying attention, which I would, I would imagine is something that they need to be doing for all sorts of things. Yeah, um, so this is by no means unique advice, but I think that that's the kind of thing that is probably going to really the best advice I can give um, uh, in terms of translating this research into practice. Great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. All right. If you'd like to find additional research, op-eds, and other original ideas from the Modern War Institute, please visit the War Council blog 
at mwi.usma.edu or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find new episodes of the Modern War Institute podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. For the Modern War Institute, I'm Captain Jake Moraldi. I hope you'll join us next time for more in-depth discussions on war, policy, and leadership. Thank you.